Hi, I'm Tammy Spector, Professor of Chemistry at the University of San Francisco, member of the Leonardo Board and editor of the ebook Art and Atoms. Joining me in this podcast are Roger Molina, Distinguished Chair of Arts and Technology and Professor of Physics at the University of Texas, Dallas, and Editor-in-Chief of Leonardo Journal, freelance science writer Philip Ball, a former Nature magazine editor and prolific author of articles and books, including Bright Earth, Art, and the Invention of Color, and Elegant Solutions, 10 Beautiful Experiments in Chemistry. Julian Vos-Andre, sculptor and trained physicist whose artistic work is heavily influenced by his scientific background and includes large-scale and site-specific pieces such as protein sculptures and quantum sculptures. And Catherine de Ryder Vignon, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Nanotechnology in Society at Arizona State University and editor of the Leonardo Journal special section, Nano Art Science Tech, part of which is included in the Art and Adams ebook. Welcome, everyone. As perhaps some of you know, for many years I've worked in the fields of chemistry and aesthetics, and also on the intersections of contemporary art and chemistry. And I'm also on the Leonardo board. And as a result of that, uh, I worked with Roger Molina on putting together an ebook, uh, Art and Atoms, which all of you in some way contributed to. That's where this came out of. And so I guess my question that I put to you was, what is unique about the connection between art and chemistry from your perspective? Uh, this is Roger Molina speaking. So I'm the executive editor of the Leonardo Publications at MIT Press. And I just joined the faculty at the University of Texas Dallas to, to set up an art and science program. So as all of you know, and our listeners probably know, Leonardo now, since the 1960s, has been documenting the work of artists involved in science and technology. And you know, one of the things that, that's really struck me in the, in the last 10 years is how artists have steadily been investing other fields of science and other technologies than the uh, computer ones. And this was something that our late board member, Steve Wilson, documented extensively in his book, Information Arts, of how indeed um, artists, uh, as they became technically proficient in the computers, started working with scientists in other disciplines. And we've seen this in art and biology, uh, space exploration, mathematics, all kinds of different fields. And so there's really been a really interesting, uh, I think, development uh, of artists working with different kinds of scientists. For me personally, the aha moment in chemistry really happened a few years ago when, when I was on the jury for the uh, Louis Vuitton Science for Art Prize. And uh, at that time, actually, uh, I think the prize was given for the work on prions. Who did the work on prions? Paul <laughs> Prusiner. Thank you. Prusiner. Where indeed it turned out the shape of a molecule had crucial implications on its, its biological activity. <laughs> but many of the submissions uh, for that prize were from scientists really talking about how they could now manipulate individual atoms. And so it kind of went beyond material science to, to using an atom as a, as a raw material. And so it really struck me how the technology of both nanoscience but chemistry had now evolved to a point where there was a really a level of sophistication in the way that atoms could be manipulated intentionally. Obviously, all the work around Buckminster Fullerene and all the excitement uh, around that uh, fed into that. And so just looking at the, the work in, of, of the artists in the ebook, we can see that, that evolution uh, in sort of the mental model that we have of, of how uh, atoms are a part of our natural environment and can be uh, manipulated just as easily as clay or architectural materials. And so that was one thing that I wanted to inject into this discussion. This is uh, Philip Ball. Um, I, I, I guess it occurs to me from what Roger has just said that this question of being able to manipulate matter at a fundamental level from an artistic perspective, that I think it was Catherine who earlier made the, the point that uh, 
this is something that's happening a lot in biosciences now. It's actually quite evolved in biosciences, particularly in the area of synthetic biology, that um, because there's this developing understanding of how to approach a living organism, a simple living organism, at least like a bacterium, as a kind of uh, a circuit that can be rewired, already there are artists interested in creating works of art out of living cells, out of bacteria, and they've done this. And I think that's extraordinary. And I think what really strikes me is that they're already using very, from a chemical point of view, hugely complex systems and and being able to, to do this and to address, I think, some genuinely challenging issues with this sort of technology. And for some reason, it surprises me uh, when I think about it this way, but for some reason, I don't think that has yet happened in chemistry, even though in principle, it ought to be simpler to do that. But certainly we're at the level of being able to, we have the technical tools to be able to manipulate atoms and molecules this way. But there hasn't yet been that, I think, that spark lit amongst artists that this is actually a medium that they can use in an artistic way. So I'm looking forward to, to that happening. I think it will happen, but I think it, that, that connection has yet to really be forged. You mean stuff like polymer f uh, chemistry or...? It could certainly be that. For example, if you look at polymer chemistry, people can make you know, incredibly complex architectures. It's no longer just about, obviously, about making just sort of strings of, of atoms and making right. linear molecules. We can make trees and other sort of branch systems and capsules and all kinds of things, which seems to lend itself to you know, someone coming along and thinking, well, then you know, this is a form of molecular sculpture. We can, we can do something with it from an artistic point of view. But as I say, I, I don't think that's quite happened yet, that someone has taken a polymer and, and said, how can we start asking the sorts of questions that artists ask, rather than, for example, making a, you know, a, a pretty molecule or a, a, a nicely symmetrical molecule? I think that's what tends to happen when, when chemists are you know, left alone to let their imaginations play. And that's very nice. Right. But I think artists would have, I think, a different objective, a different perspective on that sort of technology. How does um, DNA origami, for example, fit in there? I mean, they started out taking DNA and making all these platonic structures in the 80s, net sequence and people like that. And now they are stapling them together and they're on the verge of making really complex structures that might be able to, you know, do computational stuff, actually. It's almost there right now. It's just not called art. I think that's true. I mean, um, uh, DNA is probably where it's going to happen first, because you're, you're, right. you're quite right, Julian, that it's uh, already, you know, the technology is in place for making incredibly complex things, you know, a map of the world you can make out of right. uh, DNA. So in principle, mm -hmm. we have the, the ground rules for making anything you like. And Absolutely. now, rather than kind of mapping, you know, macroscopic objects onto to DNA, I think we, we might be in the, the situation where we can start thinking about what, from an artistic perspective, might we be able to say with DNA, given its centrality to life, that using it just as a kind of plasticine, we must be able to, to do something that actually challenges us, challenges us to, to think about what this stuff is and what it does? I think that, um, you know, the nanotechnologists, particularly artists who work with nanotechnology, have been doing this for a while. Probably Catherine has a lot more to say about it than I do, but... I don't know, some of it seems somewhat naive to me, but I mean, there is a lot of sort of manipulation of atoms to create structures that mimic things in the real world or abstractions also on an atomic scale. So there is that going on and has been, I think, from pretty early on from STM technologies. Would you agree, Catherine? No, I, I agree. Um, I think, though, it goes back to some of the concerns about the extent to which the artists uh, who are sort of manipulating materials and have been seeing it are doing such, such things in a serious way. And I think one of the things that I'm looking for, and I wonder if it has to do with um, mentioning DNA. DNA is also, it's chemistry and biology. And so I wonder sometimes that with artists, if part of the reason why there isn't a lot of uh, what seems to me to be very serious interest in using chemical methods as art, um, perhaps is because it doesn't have some sort of other um, evocation, right? There's nothing, uh, chemistry doesn't have this idea that 
it affects the world in a grand way for some people, the way biology does. Um, and that's generalization, but I sometimes wonder if there's, there's just not something more, if there's not a clear idea of what chemistry and the definition of chemistry is. And that's why, like for me, I look at nanotechnology and people are trying to make these links between what nano is and what it is at the macro scale and in the nano scale and some of the metaphors between that. But again, those, those metaphors aren't particularly uh, compelling or as compelling as I would like to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Roger just jumping on, on Catherine's comment. And indeed, I, I think you did make the comment that you were, you were sort of interested in how artists might visioneer the problem a little bit and, and look at sort of future scenarios and, and other, uh, other kinds of things. And so to get beyond uh, the, the manipulation stage and uh, the illustration stage, and, and as you said, none of us really know what the words are that we should use to describe phenomena at this scale. And so we're, we're really in a regime of, of where artists can create those imaginaries, which can maybe help us uh, think about uh, future developments and so on. And, and so I agree with you, some of the, the papers in, in the ebook uh, seem to me um, are, are sort of really the first steps <laughs> at artists' yeah. engage, engagement in, the, in this area of science and technology. Uh, and that over the coming decades, uh, what would be great is to, is to really see artists involved uh, with these kinds of sciences and technologies in the same way that they've been involved in botany, for instance, or um, anatomy or, or these other fields where obviously everybody has a shared experience. We know how to develop the language to talk about uh, legs and cartilages and veins and so on. But at the, at the, the atomic scale and the, and the nano scale, we're really in a, in a regime where we, we don't have we don't know how to build the language and the descriptive systems, and so yes, I think we should challenge the the artist to be much more ambitious. Yeah, and I think part of that too is making sure the artists themselves have the support from larger institutions. And and if you look at like I mentioned, the bio artists, uh, they've really fought in various places to be included as either scientists or as artists. And so I think it would be really interesting to to look at the institutions that are supporting the kind of work that you're talking about. The bio artists have done a good job or a better job of that. Part of it is, uh, as, as Catherine was saying, is a sort of lack of uh, knowledge of chemistry for a lot of artists, but also a lack of understanding of the connection between chemistry and art, which for me, actually, as a chemist, I think is incredibly strong and a very natural connection. Chemistry and art actually have a much more or at least an equal connection to the arts as the other sciences which are more familiarly connected to the arts like biology and physics and biology for a variety of reasons and physics through its sort of aesthetic qualities I suppose and some of those properties for me or some of those conceptual connections between art and chemistry would be that chemistry is synthetic and so visual arts at least, are very um, synthetic in their nature. They're product-oriented. There's issues around process and product. There's issues around representation. All of those things in chemistry that come up that aren't necessarily coming up in such a natural way with the other sciences. So it seems like a really strong connection, but that people who aren't chemists think of chemistry as a very abstract thing that they don't have connection to and or they just view chemistry in a different way as sort of an applied thing and that's it. I, I, I think you're right to, but I think on the other hand that it, it's because of those characteristics of chemistry that in principle it seems like it ought to be closer to what artists do because it's creative, because it's not so much about understanding how the world is but more about what can we do with it? What can we make with it? So, you know, it seems to me that it's all there. It's all ready to happen. The fact that chemistry, has, at its core, it has creativity there. And so many chemists have this creativity within them. They have to have that to be a professional. So, you know, it's really um, waiting to happen, I think. I guess the other thing that, I, that interests me about that is what are the barriers for entry, particularly that you all seem that you've worked more directly in terms of why hasn't this happened yet to the extent that we would like to see at least? I actually do think that artists are working within the realm of chemistry. They're just not contextualizing it themselves within that realm. So I can take many different artists and look at their work and say, ah, oh, that's connected to chemistry, but they might not be viewing it that way. And so it seems more to me like an issue of education 
The problem for me is when I contemplate the connection of art and, and chemistry is that since everything is chemistry pretty much, it seems hard to find what is the specifics about it. So, so that's what I keep struggling with in our discussion, that, that I don't really know what is not chemistry. Sort of to connect those two points, I guess, the idea that uh, it matters that artists are working with chemistry but aren't recognizing it is also connected to if everything is chemistry, which obviously Tammy could explain more on that, but people aren't recognizing it as everything being chemistry or as a lot of things being chemistry. And I guess going back to what Tammy asked, I, I was curious in terms of education, you mentioned like education for whom? For the artists? For means through which the artists get their support and recognizing what they do as chemistry? I guess I was just kind of curious what role education sort of plays in there because it's not clear to me who it is that like where the information needs to come from is it doesn't matter that the artists themselves need to recognize it as chemistry if people looking at it can do that it matters only in that it can be motivating for artists to understand the particular ways that art connects to chemistry and maybe in the way that bio art or other types of science art have been really motivating for artists that it could be a really motivating thing. So I guess when I think about it, I, I would say educating artists in some way. I don't know how artists go about getting educated about, let's say, doing bio art, like at Symbotica or someplace like that. You know, where did they get that interest in the first place? Is it just they're just naturally interested in those systems and they come to that? They must have learned it somewhere. And so I think that's not happening in chemistry, but it could be a very motivating and challenging place for artists to go that they haven't had access to. I think Symbiotica is a really interesting example, um, particularly because a lot of the work that's done by the by artists there, right, is trying to really question uh, the differences between art and science and try to say, okay, so is, is what we're doing actually as artists actually that different from what scientists do? And maybe it's just there's not easy pathway to do that through chemistry yet, perhaps because of the, the technologies that are involved. I'm not really sure. Um, I, I don't know, you know, even the microscopes and things like that that you have to use it may actually just be a, a, an access to those kinds of materials, which seems like a simple answer to it. But I wonder how much of that plays a role, whereas with a lot of the biosciences, you're able to sort of do it yourself. And they have, the bio artists have, have gained an enormous amount of expertise in the laboratory, but it's still, a wet lab is different from working with, you know, multi-million dollar microscopes. I, I wonder, I mean, I think there are cases where that's probably true, but I think a lot of chemistry goes on at the same kind of level as biology, at the sort of messy bench level that can be learned without a huge amount of effort. So, you know, I think the techniques might be a, a bit of a stumbling block, but, uh, but not necessarily a bigger one than, than elsewhere. I wonder whether some of the problems might be just in, in establishing lines of communication. You know, my instinct is to say, get artists into, into the lab, get them into chemistry departments. I've heard one or two stories about when that's happened, uh, you know, where there's been an artist in residence at a chemistry department and the chemists say, oh, fantastic, you can help me prepare my illustrations for my next paper. <laughs> and, um, or, you know, a writer, you can come and tell me how to write my paper. And th this is really the problem that, um, you know, it, it's, it's really sort of how to, how to get a creative dialogue going, how to get chemists and scientists generally, but we're talking about chemists, to really recognize what the value might be of having an artist there and what sort of things they might be interested in, what they might do. And it's not going to be the same as talking about how to photograph your, your results well or how to present them well. It's something quite different. Yeah, maybe a big part of it is this, Julian, is um, that that artists um, are not so as drawn to chemistry as to biology these days. Is that it seems, you know, it had its newness already quite a while ago, about you know over a hundred years now. That's when you know chemistry started for the first time to be used to make drugs, for example, and and the chemical industry, you know, rose. So and 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 biology, of course, you know, now we are in a different era, and and it's much more. You know, cutting edge, of course, you know, because of, you know, the cloning issues and, and, and stem cells and all that kind of stuff. And what's what does it mean to be alive and what is, you know, the ethical issues in there? You know, as it seems like a much, much older thing, the chemistry issues we still have, of course, and which are huge. But that's why I think it's a that's a big part of it. 
Yeah, I mean, there are artists, though, who, who work in chemistry, obviously from the Art and Adams book, but also other ones. Yeah. I mean, Phil, on your email, you, yeah. you had some links to some uh, artists who are doing work like with creating crystalline materials. There's a Japanese artist who creates these crystal chairs. I don't know if you guys have seen that work. There's another British artist who does this stuff where he fills these rooms with these copper crystals. They're doing work that's chemistry. And, uh, you know, pretty directly, and not by going into a lab, but by using the materials of chemistry itself in a very conscious way to create these environments that are artistic environments. They're not about chemistry itself. And I find that really more interesting, actually, than artists going into a lab um, because of this sort of, you know, the artist being the handmaiding to the scientist thing that happens often when artists go into labs. And the Symbotica example is a good example because they're located in the science department. They view themselves purely as artists, and so it creates a really amazing dialogue, I think. But you don't see that across the disciplines in science. I agree with that. I think that um, the example of uh, Roger Hyon, who, who did those, those rooms as houses filled with copper sulfate crystals, is a, is a great example. And in particular, I think so, because what he's making use of is the sensual aspect of chemistry, the fact that it, it just looks amazing or it smells amazing, um, you know, that we have a, a, some sort of relationship to crystals. What he have essentially did was to create a kind of grotto, a kind of fantasy grotto in the middle of a housing state in London by, you know, using chemistry to produce these crystals. And I think it, it's potentially that link to the sights and smells, perhaps even the sounds of chemistry, that is another way in that artists can find and that I think that everyone can relate to without any chemical knowledge. And, and the thing about it is actually, is interesting, this is Tammy again, is a lot of, you know, bio art, for example, or nano art, is not that interesting to look at, but that's actually, a, those pieces are really amazing. I mean, I, I think they would re they really engage the senses and people are fascinated by them. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I saw something similar. It reminds me of a, a sculptural exhibition at a, a small gallery here called GV Art that specializes in scientifically motivated art. And uh, they had a whole series of sculptures made out of salt, out of rock crystal. And again, it's the, it was the material, this stuff, that, you know, in a, on the one hand is completely familiar, on the other hand is completely alien when you see it used in this way as a sculptural material, but also that has, and I think this is crucial to that project, that has all sorts of cultural resonances about it. I mean, these were people who were interested in salt because of they were Australians and they were interested in the salination that was going on in agricultural soils where the salt rises to the surface. And so it was about some aspect of the world, but in this very sort of oblique way, that raised a lot of interesting questions. So this is uh, Tammy again. To go back to uh, Julian's question about, so what is it specifically about, you know, chemistry? Yeah, because everything is atoms and molecules after all. So you could just say everything is chemistry and then there's not much more to say. But I think like for me, so I'm an organic chemist, so it's a particular perspective on chemistry. So I think about something like the dichotomy between process and product, for example. That's a very particular thing to, to chemistry because organic chemists and many other kinds of chemists, you know, we're, we're making things, so it's synthetic, and we yield out some end product which we visualize on the page in some way as a molecule. But the process itself also has all sorts of aesthetic implications associated with it. Um, and that's also true for artists. You know, the, the way they go about something is distinct from the product itself. The product itself might not be interesting at all. I mean, if you think about, for example, a pure white painting or something like that, you know, those kinds of things, you might look at it and think, so what? But it's really about the conceptual underlying to that thing that is interesting. And that's also true in chemistry and the way that we make our molecules and the creation of the molecule itself and what it is in our mind's eye or on the page and the way we got there has all sorts of artistic implications to me. That, Tammy, puts me in mind of Joseph Boyd, actually. You could cite him, actually, as someone who was interested, was engaged in chemistry. He was fascinated by materials, by fat and wax and, and felt. And 
for him also the creation of these objects that he made the process that, that by which he got there was a crucial part of it and you didn't necessarily know about that when you looked at his stuff but you certainly in some way had a sense that what you were what he was saying here was that he wasn't giving you a finished product he was telling you something about a journey literally sometimes a journey that he went on to end up with these these objects um, so, you know, I think that sort of idea, that tradition of, I mean, I suppose, again, Jackson Pollock is another example that, you know, that tradition in art of thinking about how something is made as well as what, what is made is, is very strong and, you know, again, is just there to, to, you know, waiting for the connection to be made. Right. That's interesting, yeah. But both Boyce and Pollock, they had their, if you will, guiding principles, but they were very, very much unlike the scientists. Boyce was basically a shaman, and, and, and Pollock in its way too. You know, they they did their dance. It was certainly very non-intellectual. So yeah. it's it's very interesting if you to compare those two approaches. I mean, what you were talking about, Tammy, is that are you talking about like an, an intuitive approach, or are you talking about intellectual guiding principles? I guess I'm thinking of both. You know, I mean, I think scientists and chemists uh, use both their intuition and guiding principles in order to go about their synthetic process and I think that's probably true with artists also I would imagine I'm not an artist but I would it's imagine It's true for my work I don't know about others Yeah so so I think it's both things that I can think of other artists I mean Eva Hess you know Ansem right. Kiefer I mean there's all sorts of artists who are dealing with these amazing materials playing with them and then making products from them some of which the products are really beautiful, but the process is also really super important. It doesn't come out so much in other sciences. I think in bio art it does. Sometimes actually in bio art I think the process becomes the whole of it and the product then is really hard to um, engage with. Oftentimes the product disappears. There is no product. Yeah. Um, so that is the process and, and the, like mentioning the cultural resonances um, that people have with that process. Yeah. You, you spend a year in the lab and fine-tune this equipment and, and solve like a million little engineering problems. Just like you write a novel, sentence after sentence, at the end you have this wonderful result in, in a paper or, or not, or, or you have a novel, novel that sells or doesn't, but there's this, this, this build-up of, of these tiny little steps all the way, and, and we tend to see only the end product. Exactly, but the process is a really important right. part. Of course, some artists bring out process, that's what their work is about, and some artists, it's the product, that's what their art is about, and for some artists, it's both things, clearly. And how do you feel about that in your own art, Julian? Um, well, the process is, is a bit removed. You know, I, I more and more tend to not do lots of my own welding, so mm -hmm. my, my process is just so much on the computer and and. With, with, I, it's a bit, a bit like in science, you know, I'm kind of basically using all these like letters and scaffolds to step up and up and up and kind of go on a different level, but it's still the very same thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing artistic decisions, many, many little ones. Mm -hmm. And it's all has this, try, try, I try to have this coherent guiding vision. It's, it's, it's very hard to explain, but, but it's, it feels very, very similar. There's also issues about serendipity and there's revision Absolute, and all kinds of things. And stuff you can't put into words, too. Accident, you know, yeah. strange stuff. Yeah. And that's weird. Yeah. And I find and that's very important in science. It's just never talked about. Right. It's not talked about very much, but it's a huge part. And, and in chemistry, very, very huge part of chemistry, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it strikes me that there are chemists who are regarded by other chemists as sort of artists in their field and obviously Robert Woodward is the obvious example you know we're talking about the, the role of intuition and perhaps you know non-rational thinking um, certainly it, it strikes one that Woodward is someone who wasn't you know planning in a, in, a, in, a, in a solely intellectual way the route that he was going to take um, there was clearly something creative inspired really about the way he was doing it um, so, you know, I think, again, that there the process is very explicitly recognized, certainly by other people who understand what he did as being a, an important part of the way he expressed himself as a chemist, if you like. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Or I think about, for example, you think about cubane and, you know, most people will get and say, OK, so there's symmetry. OK, great. And as you said earlier, Phil, symmetry only goes so far in terms of <laughs> being artistic, in my opinion. But 
if you think about that, you know, many different people made cubane after Eaton Cole, who were the initial chemists who made that molecule. For those of you who don't know, it's a cube-shaped carbon-based molecule, and it was a real sort of synthetic feat to make it. But then other people made it after that, you know, and so all these issues that come up in art, issues of originality, but also what informs cubane beyond its symmetry is what was the process used to make that and what was the most clever and interesting and all of those things. That, that informs, for a chemist looking at it, what makes that an elegant synthesis or not. It's not the mm. end product. The same is true in mathematics. You know, take a proof, for example. There's always lots to learn about different approaches to that proof. Or in physics, you know, right. Einstein deriving Planck's equations and finding the laser that way. Right. Except for in chemistry, you get an actual product out in the end, right? It's a thing. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Could be a milligram of it. But yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. I really love the idea of um, sort of making the process more visible and the fact that scientists and artists both really rely on intuition and, and perhaps maybe what I see as sort of sometimes a disconnect between those two worlds is the fact that that intuition that's so valuable in both worlds is, is thought of as something different. So like you were saying, scientists often times you know they erase that intuition and the non-rational thinking that is so valuable to what they do and uh, and this idea that you know artists rely on it in a way that maybe scientists don't and that doesn't seem like an accurate representation of, of the groups and, um, and so perhaps with chemistry for some reason there's a tendency to to make those distinctions when they're not really accurate and so um, it results in this idea going back to what we were talking about before about why like you're saying either people aren't recognizing that they're doing Art, art with chemistry, or why you know bio arts or artists with biology is it seems to be more visible, more popular, more supported, whatever. Um, whereas the focus on chemistry just hasn't really come to the forefront in a way um, that maybe we would like it to. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a vested interest, perhaps because I'm trained as a chemist, and I I see that lack in the sort of art science conversation, and so I would like to bring chemistry more into it. I come more from thinking about it as science communication or science education. And from that perspective, I think um, the, the art that is most successful in that environment, if you're thinking of it as science communication, which I know a lot of artists would hate that idea, but um, is the art, art that shows the process of both the art and the science and how those two things are alike. And I really love those pieces and they're sort of few and far between that they, they do have a product. and. Oftentimes because they're focused on a, a more general audience or more public audience, there, there has to be some sort of tangible product. But at the same time, that product actually is revealing the processes that artists and scientists often share, um, particularly when you're dealing with nanotechnology, which can be a challenge for people to really sort of grasp what the heck you're talking about in the first Can place. you give an example of a piece that you might think of? Oh, I mean, just off the top of my head, I was thinking about like some of Victoria Vesna's work where you're thinking about articulating the buckyball, for instance, and being able to, um, to manipulate that buckyball as you go into her, her exhibit and, and seeing how then the process, when you as a visitor to her work, feeds into um, some of the preceding or proceeding rooms of her larger exhibits. Um, yeah, she, she does a good job of that, for sure. Talking about pro the, the product um, makes me, I wanted to, to, to raise this issue of representation, which I think Tammy mentioned earlier, um, and I think is, is really important in chemistry and thinking about chemistry as art, particularly if we're talking about you, you know, using chemical principles to manipulate atoms in an artistic way. You then have the question of how do you show people that you've done that? And in some cases, you might be able to use a scanning tunneling microscope to be able to do that. And what you, but what you see is ne probably never very aesthetically pleasing. It's a kind of fuzzy blob. But in some cases, you don't have that option at all. You just have perhaps a solution, perhaps a clear solution. It looks as though there's nothing there. How are you going to represent what you've made? And I think, although that, that could sound like a problem, I think that's actually an opportunity because it, it challenges the whole question of, how you represent the art, how you show the art, and how and and exploring how you know how scientists think about that. The people talk about the beauty of of C sixty as a you know as a symmetrical molecule, but that beauty was first seen as a spike in an NMR spectrum, just a single spike, and you know it was all there for for a chemist that told the story. For an outsider, 
it, it, what on earth would it mean? And so I think this tension that you have of how to present, and the same is true, of course, in nanotechnology, whenever you've got anything that's too small to see and too small to clearly resolve in a microscope, then you've got to think about how you show it. And part of what chemists do in that showing is about the process. They show you, you know, at this point I got this spectrum and then I had this spectrum and then I was sort of, you know, thinking about what that might mean in terms of structures. And there's a whole process of figuring out what it is that you've got, what it is that you've made that I think, you know, it, it, it ought to be there in some way. That's something we're used in art anyway, right? I mean, if, if you look at Goldsworthy, for example, you never see his actual things he builds. You see his photos. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. the Mona Lisa, few of us ever see it probably, you know, but we all know the photo of the image. And, you know, it's, there's always the stand-in for something bigger that represents this artwork. So I think the, the, a part of the artistry is to find a representation, an iconic thing that, that does this job of becoming you know, this, this artwork, if it's uh, t typically these days a photo on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think that proves to be a challenge of a lot of art now is um, the, the art itself is very short-lived, right? Most of the time people's interaction with it actually is digitally online. Uh, and how that limits the art or how that changes it, I think, is really interesting. Yeah. Well, Julian, you're wrestling, of course, with this in terms of trying to find ways to represent at the macroscopic level things that literally can't be not only seen but can barely be imagined, you know, if you're yeah. th thinking about quantum properties, that in a way you could say, I don't know if you would, you would argue it this way, that, that the only way you can try to convey and represent those is in a kind of quasi-artistic way or a completely artistic way as you do because there is no scientific way of actually showing them in a you know in a pictorial sense is that at least none i'm aware of yeah but, but that's definitely it it's it feels that's that's my struggle i try to make an object or even if it's the photo of an object that that resonates the right way that has this artistic feel to it that that makes it alive as i try to write in my short thing mm -hmm. It's, yeah. it's very hard to explain, but it feels very similar to, to all the other efforts. You, you just, I, I, I built this thing and I'm, I'm struggling for an elegance and I'm, the process all works towards refining it to make it just right, that it rings true, that it, that it resonates and it's not arbitrary. It resonates artistically, you mean, I assume. That's, that's what I mean, yeah. Like yeah. resonates, yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's how I define art, basically. Yeah. Which is interesting because it sounds then as though you have a, a kind of criterion in your mind for when you've conveyed what you want to convey, but Absolutely. it's not. But it's not exactly a you know a scientific. You're not you're not trying to tell people what this concept means. Um, not at all, and it's very important to be open. You can't write down the algorithm and find a cookbook recipe for making great art. That's just not possible. Just like in quantum physics, you can't you know measure the thing and then not change it. It's like you destroy the superposition, if you will. You have to keep it open and alive in order to, to kind of feel it. It's like when you sing and you sing a, a note, you can't just press it into that, but that. That's what you want. It just has to be alive. And I don't know how to explain that other than metaphors. I think, um, you know, it's one of these central conundrums of, of art itself is about, you know, how to represent, because art is, at least visual art, is about representation. I mean, you go back to, you know, Magritte, this is not a pipe, or whatever, you know, that's, this question is, the art is not the thing itself, and so you're trying to get at those issues more explicitly, it seems to me, and yeah. because science also deals with that. Yeah, but the critical difference to me is, in science, good science, you are able to explain in very crisp words. And, and that's like an, an important part of, of science and that makes good science because it's intellectually very, very crisp and clear. But art is very different. You, you cannot capture the essence of an art piece by giving a bunch of interpretations and know them all. It's, that's not it. You, know, you have to become one with it and it has to stay alive in your heart. You know, it's, it's something beyond words. The intellect is, is not the right domain to get out of art what can be gotten out of art. I think that's true for sure. And... Uh, potentially true in science also, but I think if you go back to the issue of representation itself, at least in chemistry, similar issues come up because the representation is not the thing itself. It's in embedded with so many qualities beyond that simple drawing of a molecule, for example. Right.
And there's no unique way to do it. In fact, chemists argue about what is the best way to do it, you know, whether you've, you've got the right technique to prove that you've got what you think you've got, <laughs> uh, which I think is, you know, it's a fantastic situation to be in, to, to, to be able to have those sorts of discussions about, you know, how you show you've got what you've got, how you represent in a way that sways people. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it might be a more intellectual persuasion than you're talking about, Julian, but I think there is that similar quality to yeah. it, uh, particularly in molecular representations. I mean, the same thing, and all these arguments in nanotechnology about this, because, of course, what you see is not the thing itself, right? It's some other thing that you're connecting to, and people have that feeling about it, like, wow, I'm seeing atoms. Of course, they're not, but... They have well, a feeling about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, another another discussion. But I mean, it's interesting if you look just for example the quantum corral, the famous image of '93. How Eigen, Donald Eigen, made this really incredible image of, of looking over the fence of the quantum corral, and that made all the difference. That's why this was so successful. I think it was a big part of it because it pulls you in, and you are part of this. Right. So is that. Was that an artistic rendition or a science? Absolutely, but, 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 you know, it makes a lot of sense. So you can't hold up the difference between art and science, ultimately, of course. It's totally connected. Yeah, that, that's a good example because that really shows it. Even you might not say it's good art. You might say it is, but it's a great example of that. It surely resonates. So in, my, in my book, it's good art. Yeah, there you go. I wonder just for that example, particularly with Eigler, it's interesting with that image because when when a scientist, when he or she gets to perform as an artist or when he or she uh, refers to himself as an artist, and I guess I was curious if that matters, if that undermines artists' expertise, actually, you know, because I love the idea that that move that he made uh, by changing the perspective of the image is what made that image stand out today, why many people still know about it. It's an iconic image, right? If he then goes on and says, I can be an artist, I, I wonder sometimes if it um, then undermines the expertise of artists themselves, um, which kind of goes back to this disconnect between chemistry and art that we were talking about in the beginning. I mean, in that particular case, you know, Don Eigler makes no particular claims about having any sort of artistic credentials. He's very kind of, um, you know, ingenuous about this. He just kind of fully admits that he was relying on his intuition to come up with something that seemed to, to work. Nothing more than that. But, but it was intuition. I mean, you know, he had no rules for, for telling him how to, how to represent that thing. I think what, what, one thing that, that interests me about this issue in chemistry, though, as opposed to art, uh, is that you have several different layers of representation. I'm thinking, for example, of if you wanted to show gold nanoparticles, you could show, uh, you know, a micrograph of, of one of these blobs that can have perhaps its own sort of elegance if you see the lattice of atoms. Or you can show this wonderful ruby red solution. They're completely different kinds of representations, completely different visual experiences, and yet they're showing the same thing. Or you could show, as I say, a spectrum that, you know, establishes that this is what you've got. So you have an almost a hierarchy of, of views of what it is that you've made in that case. I can't immediately think of any analogies to that in, in art. Of multiple perspectives on yes. the same... Yeah. Ways of representing things. Yeah, it, it, all of which are arguably, you know, as valid as the other. Maybe I, like painting and sculpture and music. I mean, different, di well, certainly different media, but, uh, but for a single object, you know, to have right. all very different ways of, of showing it. Yeah, I haven't seen any pieces like that that come to mind, I, I must admit. Uh, wait a minute, there's this, like, for example, the 36 views of Mount Fuji and then Cezanne painted the same shit or the same apples, you know, over and over again yeah. and in different days. And the Impressionists, Impressionists did this in some instances that they went for the same exact thing and just looked at different times of the day, maybe something like that. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking, too. Impressionism was the thing that sort of jumped out at me. I mean, that's the thing that that I thought of immediately. What you're saying is sitting there and you know doing the cathedral over and over and over again. Exactly right? the cathedral. Yes, it seems very mm -hmm. simple. That's the one. But those are different impressions using the same medium. I think what it seems to me you're saying, Phil, is that there's these different, completely different representations of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose no, I th 
different views or different perspectives using, let's say, painting or something like that. Yeah, right. yeah, no, I think that's right. Although, in fact, you know, maybe a cathedral is a good example that you, you know, the experience that you get of it from being on the roof, as I have been at Chartres once, is very different from being, you know, right up next to one of the windows in the nave or being, you know, right down at the bottom and having this thing all around you. And there's definitely a hierarchy of structure in cathedrals. So maybe that is a good example. Yeah. And so I can see why you're saying, Catherine, Impressionism, because it kind of brings in you know, maybe somebody painted the same view, you know, as Surat or somebody like that, but then they're just taking it to this different space, right? Bringing it close in, you're getting this pixelated thing, and it gives you a whole other perspective on that exact same scene. If you think of Impressionism itself as a move, it is the solution or it is the spectrum, and then other methods prior to or after are some of the other uh, views that Phil mentioned. I, I don't know. To me, it actually resonates quite well, um, especially if you think about like Picasso and some of the work that he did in terms of quantum science. As I understood it, a lot of uh, Picasso's work, whether it's the sculpture or the painting, is trying to see multiple views of time simultaneously, right? And trying to think about the quantum world and how we can visualize that. And to me, it was always a struggle a bit because my understanding of painting is so literal, which is not a great understanding, but I love that idea of trying to connect the quantum world in a visual sense um, through the painting of some of the sculptures that he did. I guess going back, thinking about, you know, an atom can be in multiple places at the same time, sort of that idea of uh, different particles trying to, you can't actually pin them down because they're constantly going. To me, that was my understanding of some of the stuff that Picasso was trying to do. I think in the cubism aspect of his work and the other cubists, I don't know if they were thinking so much about the science, but it certainly has been interpreted that way. But perhaps, you know, I mean, it was uh, the zeitgeist of the time. So they were thinking about multiple perspectives and being able to capture things in that way. I'm interested in what Julia might say about, in, in a sense, we, you know, we've talked about using atoms as your medium. In a, in a way, Julian, you're sort of going at it from, uh, in some of your pieces at least, from the other perspective of using sort of classical media, um, you know, casting and, and, and wood and so forth to represent things that are actually, that we don't actually know what they look like. I mean, right. You know, we represent them, but they don't have a form that you can, you can represent <laughs> that way. How do you reconcile yourself to, to that? How do you decide how you're going to present this thing that, you know, doesn't have a, a unique yeah. way? Well, in, in this case, I mean, you're probably talking about the, the protein pieces I made. Yeah. In, yeah. in those, I mean, the, the driving force behind it was just this idea of seeing that DNA is a one-dimensional thing and we are three-dimensional because, you know, the one-dimensional DNA gets read and turned into, into like, chains of amino acids that fold into 3D conformations that become the building blocks of us. That's, like, in a nutshell how it, how it is. And, and so there's this step going from 1D to 3D, and I found that if I take this piece of wood or steel beam and apply the compound mitered cuts and reassemble it without losing any material, it's a very elegant way of going from one dimensional to three dimensional. So that, that conceptual idea was, was just so intriguing to me that I decided to set out and write a program that turns the crystallographer's data of the protein structures into cutting instructions to make my own protein sculptures. That, that was the starting point, that obsession with this conceptual idea and then I just played with it and, and saw what happened and it was just intriguing you know I got very modernist looking pieces on one end and then just interesting structures and, and beautiful things and, and I struggled hard at that time I had just started taking up art college here in America I came from from Europe and was a total physicist at that time before that because of my background so I was a total outsider and I didn't know how to explain to the people that I felt this was art. Everybody was like, eh, those are models, you know, that's not art. And I got much worse things. I heard like really pretty bad things in my, my thesis, mid-thesis review. There were like people from the community, one guy, this is, this is not art. I'm not going to review this. So I, I got like for America, especially for the West Coast, like pretty hostile remarks. And um, so, so I struggled with it so hard and I figured out what is it that I, why, I, why do I feel that this is art? So that was kind of what triggered this evolution from the model to the sculpture, basically. Right. That's interesting. So it sounds as though this whole idea of 
process of how you how you how you make the thing rather than you know what is being made in the end was really important to you there as well yes absolutely yeah. yes it's very interesting to me because when i look at those pieces of yours i look at them and i think oh well they look like a crystal structure right so they look like uh you know that you could look at on the computer from the database you know the protein database so right, right. it's interesting to hear your process, it, it gives it a lot more depth to understand the process. From and the there's much more to it. It's, 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 really, it's a weird story. I mean, I, I just, I, I was doing my research. I, I started my PhD and we had just done this experiment where we took buckyballs and sent them through a double slit experiment to show that they actually behave as waves and go through two openings at once you could say. And so we were looking at extending that to bigger biomolecules. And so I was looking, I, I, I just met this woman who is, who is now my wife, and, and she was doing her neuroscience research in, in the United States. And I was saying, do you know any proteins? There are these things called proteins, something I can visualize that where I can see like a single one pretty easily. And she said, how about GFP, this green fluorescent protein? And I had no idea what she was talking about. So I looked it up on Google, which was brand new that year. And I saw the structure and I was completely blown away by that, by that image. Because it, I felt it was like the missing link between our warm organic bodies, you know, usually the ones used in art, and the, and the constructivist mathematical aesthetics of the single molecule, the, 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 the small water molecule, hydrogen atom, stuff like that. So it was like right in between that those, those two worlds. There was some symmetry, but not perfect symmetry. And I realized scale-wise that's also the, the connection between those two worlds. And, and so this GFP stuck to my head, and then I, I moved to be with her to the United States and started art college. And, I, and the first class I took was basically this foundation sculpting class. I had no idea about sculpture before that. And we did this miter cut project, and then I was like, wait a minute, this reminds me of something. When we had the critique, and one guy made a, a little ball out of this huge piece of wood. He just crumpled it all up with miter cuts into this dense structure. It looked like a globular protein. And then I had this aha moment, and then I pulled out the GFP pictures, and I said, I wanted to make a GFP. That's how it all started for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, we've been talking for a while. I just wanted to give an example, one last example of an artist. I think that sort of exemplifies some of this stuff, which is this artist, Kim Abelis. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of her, but... She's an L.A. artist, and she did this project actually in the early 90s that I felt really compelled by, which was she took these plates and put like a dinner plate and put this adhesive onto the plates that was invisible. And then she would put them up on top of her apartment building and expose them to the smog in L.A., and they would develop. And what developed on them was images of the different American presidents and she left them up on the top of the building for the time associated with their environmental record. And um, so she's a great example of um, somebody who's using chemistry and then also the issues that we're discussing of process and product and visualizing the invisible representation, a whole bunch of things. I think she's a great example of that and the ways that chemistry and art can intersect with an artist who's conscious about those things. That's a very nice example. I hadn't heard that. Okay. Thanks, everybody. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information about Leonardo or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.